Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 13th, 2015. Yeah, that's right. It's Friday the 13th. And it means absolutely nothing. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, compare what people are saying to the name of God, in the name of God to the Word of God in context, using sound biblical exegesis and hermeneutics to see if what's being said actually squares with God's word, or if we're being taught, well, something that's less than the truth. Yeah, less than the truth. That can be dangerous stuff, by the way. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to begin this episode of Fighting for the Faith with a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times update. Now, I, I must register a complaint with the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. I, I've got to admit, I'm disappointed. And you're thinking, well, why are you disappointed? Well, the reason I am disappointed with William Tapley is because he has yet to weigh in on the prophetic significance of the Katy Perry halftime Super Bowl extravaganza. And in fact, he hasn't, I mean, as far as I can tell, it either wasn't on his radar or he didn't see any prophetic significance of it. And I got to admit, I'm shocked. I just, I mean, (sighs) I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do without my William Tapley update regarding the uh, Katy Perry halftime Super Bowl extravaganza. But that being the case, um, William Tapley, although he's been, well, missing, he's been AWOL regarding the halftime Super Bowl uh, show, He's Johnny on the spot regarding the, uh, the the movie that's coming out, Fifty Shades of Grey, which is just it, I ugh, it, it awful. Is that's the only way I can put it? I mean, it's just absolutely reprehensible that the culture has stooped to this level. But hey, you know what do unregenerate pagans do? Yeah. Anyway, so uh, we're going to begin with a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times update, as he weighs in regarding the prophetic significance of the movie Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. I just... <laughs> yeah. 
Now, I would say he's never one to disappoint, but I get again, I'm disappointed that he still hasn't told us anything about the Super Bowl. So um, then we're going to switch gears after William Tapley, and we have a uh, Terry Savelle Foy update. And uh, we're going to be listening to her answer the question, does your appearance affect your success? Does your appearance affect your success? Now, the nice thing about working in radio <laughs> is that clearly my, <laughs> my appearance is not impacting my success. In fact, I have no idea what any of you, you know, when you hear my voice, what you imagine that I look like or what I'm wearing. Believe me when I <laughs> tell you what I'm wearing on any given day while I'm recording Fighting for the Faith. It's, well, uh, <laughs> less than business casual. It's way less than business casual Way, way, way less. It's in fact, it's closer to homeless than it is to business casual. So, <laughs> so at least for me, at least for me, I could I could say my appearance, although it should, has not negatively affected my success. Anyway, you get the point. So I'm cracking myself up because it's uh, wow. Anyway, yeah. So when I when I when I go to conferences and stuff like that, um, I dress up. <laughs> you know, every other day of the week. Yeah, no, no, yeah, not at all. Anyway, so we're gonna be listening to Terry Savelle Foy talking about or answering the question: Does your appearance affect your success? And then we'll take a break. When we come back from the break, we'll do an extended email segment. And then in hour number two, we're going to be listening to a pastor, the, uh, a missionary pastor in Thailand, uh, Corey Klein, who uh, we've featured his sermons here in the past on Fighting for the Faith. And he recently uh, gave a uh, plenary lecture at the Southeast Asia Reformed Conference talking about preaching Christ from the Gospels. I mean, it sounds like a revolutionary idea, but... The, the the reason I'm going to play this um, is although I'm not a Calvinist, uh, you know, and he does mention the doctrines of grace. It's really not about the doctrines of grace. The one thing he does in this that I think is rather fascinating is is he says things that are like the polar opposite of what you heard Andy Stanley say in that sermon that I reviewed yesterday. In fact. Um, if you have not listened to the sermon review yesterday, that is one of the more important sermons I've reviewed in a long time, and uh, and I think it's important enough that uh, you, you, I would say strongly consider listening to it if you haven't already done so. And again, I understand that some of you, you know, the uh, the sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith can be a little bit dark and foreboding. But uh, this is one that I think every Christian needs to hear uh, because literally it's a declaration of war it is a declaration of war against all the christians out there who have churches that consider their sanctuaries to be a sacred space they preach from the sacred texts and uh and they believe that you know the pastoral office that these men that these are men who should be filling that office and that it is an actual office in the church so um yeah it's it uh, very scary what we heard from andy stanley yesterday anyway so that's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're starting off with a William Tapley update, that requires us to do this. <laughs> 
listen to Third Eagle's tune, doom and gloom. God is telling us the end is coming soon, very soon. You'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon, doom and gloom. Very soon, rapture comes at night or noon, doom and gloom. Very soon, if you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. All right, that's Doom and Gloom coming soon, a tune written by uh, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times himself, William Tapley. So although, again, I've, I'm expressing like shock, you know, disappointment in William Tapley that we still have not heard anything from him regarding the halftime Super Bowl extravaganza performed by Katy Perry. Um, you know, he is Johnny on the spot regarding the Fifty Shades of Grey uh, movie that I guess is coming out this week. Not that I'm going to go see it or that I've read the book. I have no desire to fill my mind with such things. But uh, here's William Tapley to explain to us the, <laughs> the significance of the Bible prophecy in Fifty Shades of Grey. And, you know, hang on a second here. I, I just I'm thinking about your health and your safety. I, I, I do need to play our warning before I play this here. Warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You've been warned. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of these end times. This weekend, a brand new porn flick is opening called Fifty Shades of Grey. That's right, and calling it a porn flick would be the right way to describe it. And this is about perverted sex, domination, submission, BDSD, I believe they call it. And I am here to warn you, however, that it is not just about porn. It is also a message from the Illuminati. (laughs) You know, sometimes I think I've got the weirdest job in the world. (laughs) Really? So, the... (laughs) Not only is Fifty Shades of Grey a porn flick, it's a prophetic message from the Illuminati. Please fill us in on the details, William Tapley. About how they plan to bring America into bondage. And what's really interesting is that their plan, as described in this movie, Fifty Shades of Porn, coincides exactly with Bible prophecy. <clears throat> William, I just have to know how you know that. You know, if you're saying that there's prophecy in here and a message from the Illuminati, 
Wouldn't that mean you have to have watched it? But first, since I do not expect to see this movie, and... Well, then how do you know it perfectly coincides with Bible prophecy? Most of you don't either. Just so that we are all on the same page, I thought I would read a description of it from Wikipedia. Fifty Shades of Grey is an erotic romance novel. (laughs) So... It fits perfectly with Bible prophecy, and it's a prophecy from the Illuminati. And he hasn't seen the movie, doesn't intend to see the movie, hasn't read the book, won't read the book, which, by the way, this is these are good things. And, <laughs> and so he knows this fits Bible prophecy, and there's a message from the Illuminati because of the summary of it on Wikipedia? Really? By British author E.L. James. That traces the deepening relationship between a college graduate, Anastasia Steele, and a young business magnate, Christian Gray. Notice that name, Christian. That should be a clue right away that there are religious overtones to this story. It is notable for its explicitly erotic scenes, featuring elements of sexual practices involving bondage slash Discipline, dominance slash submission, and sadism slash masochism. A lot of slashes there, if you ask me. And now I thought I'd read the plot, a little bit of it anyway. Anastasia later meets Christian. Now this is after they have already had a sexual relationship. To discuss the contract, only to grow overwhelmed by the potential BDSM arrangement and the potential of having a sexual relationship with Christian that is not romantic in nature. And since they have already had a physical contact, this is not satisfactory to Christian Gray. He wants to dominate Anastasia, and that is his goal in the movie and the book. I presume, I believe they both have basically the same plot. But the interesting part is that this reflects perfectly a similar plot in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, we see this very famous scene of the Whore of Babylon riding the Scarlet Beast. And of course, the Whore of Babylon symbolizes primarily the United States. The Scarlet Beast symbolizes primarily Russia. And Russia turns the tables on the whore Babylon and burns her with fire and leaves her naked and desolate. Very similar to what Christian Grey does to Anastasia in this Fifty Shades of Grey. So he burns her. Oh, man. <sighs> so now let's read from Scripture how St. John describes this relationship between the whore and the beast. Chapter 17, verse number 3. And he took me away in spirit into the desert, and I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast. Now, an angel is showing John this vision. And notice they go in the spirit into the desert. That means that both Babylon and the beast are in a spiritual desert. 
And that signifies that both Russia and America are in spiritual deserts. And also... <laughs> oh, man. You know, <laughs> there's just no untangling this knot. I mean, it's just absolutely impossible. So you kind of get the point. And again, William Tapley. There's a reason why we play William Tapley. Part of it has to do with because some of what he says is just so far out there, it's just it has to be passed along. The other part of it, though, is that he, again, is the poster boy for great commission creep, guy who's followed after the uh, the proverbial theological squirrel and is not even remotely doing the job that Christians have been called to do by the Lord of the Church himself, Jesus Christ, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that he's commanded. Yeah, no, he's he's uh, out there trying to crack eschatological codes and sees them all over the place. And you think, just when you think you know, the, you know what the next thing is that he's going to be talking about, you know, he throws a curveball at you and uh, doesn't actually bite. I mean, it's just weird. It's, um, you know, like again, you know, again, I'm very disappointed so far. No word regarding the <clears throat> Katy Perry Super Bowl halftime extravaganza. But again, Johnny on the spot regarding <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey. Any useful information in there? No, no, no. Does it help you have a deeper understanding of Scripture? Yeah, no, not at all. Um, yeah, <clears throat> all I can say is I think it's time for our next segment. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. I'm a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. Yeah, that's right. Time for a Terry Savelle Foy update. That's uh, Barbie Girl, our theme song for Terry Savelle Foy. Now, what we're going to be listening to is uh, <laughs> a video from Terry Savelle Foy, and we're going to hear her talking about what's called the Law of Attraction, which is not a biblical law, nor is it one of the laws of nature, or is it a law of physics, or anything like that. Uh, this is a made-up um, es esoteric law. I think more in line with Buddhism than it is with Christianity, but uh, she's going to be explaining that to us in under the uh, rubric of uh, does your appearance affect your success? So without any further ado, here's Terry Savelle Foy. I heard the phrase that it's what's on the inside that counts, right? You've probably even heard the scripture. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And of course, I believe the word of God, that is the truth. But let me just ask you, do you think your appearance affects your success? No, I work in radio. Let's talk about that this week. You know, let me just ask you, what if I were to say I have a very special gift for you? Very special, but it's what's on the inside that counts. Now, you make the decision. Do you want the Walmart bag or the Louis Vuitton bag? Now it's okay, so she's got you know, it's what's on the inside that counts, and she's holding up props. She's got a Walmart plastic bag that you get at Walmart. And a Louis Vuitton bag. That's the first time I've ever seen one of them. Okay, so um, it's what's on the inside that counts. The inside that counts. But 
I don't know about you, the packaging sort of affects my decision, right? Well, you know, you've probably heard about the law of attraction. Now, the law of attraction, basically, it explains that your mind is like a magnet, that whatever gets in your mind and stays there, you will attract it in your life. Uh huh. And this is nowhere taught in the scriptures, by the way. The law of attraction is not a biblical law. This is not found in the scriptures. And anybody who says they can point it out to you from their Bible, you will note that they will go to half verses or verses out of context or verses from strange or old translations of the Bible and not pay any attention to what's really going on in those passages in order to prove this point that the, the God's word somehow teaches the law of attraction. No, it doesn't. In fact, if you remember a few years ago, there was this book out there called The Secret or something like that, and uh, it basically was teaching the law of attraction. Yeah, this is like New Age spiritualism, not biblical Christianity or Christian doctrine. And I just it absolutely fascinates me when somebody who supposedly is a Bible-believing Christian buys into something as egregiously non-biblical as the law of attraction is. Attraction, or you could say Proverbs 23, 7. Whatever a man thinks in his heart, so does he become. What you think about, you bring about, right? Yeah, Proverbs 23, 7. We do this from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith. Very easy to demonstrate that that is not teaching the law of attraction. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Proverbs 23, and we'll take a look at verse 7 in context, and I'm going to read it from the ESV. And when I read it from the ESV, you're probably going to sit there and say, but it doesn't say what she said it was saying. Right, because she's quoting <clears throat> Proverbs 23, 7, half verse from the King James. That's where she's getting this from. But uh, the context actually begins just immediately in the verse ahead, verse 6. Here's what it says. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Yeah, see, there you go. The law of attraction right there. You get to, Wait a second, Chris. It doesn't say what she said. She said whatever a man thinks in his heart, so he becomes. Yeah, uh, again, the problem here is, is that it's a half verse from the King James. Let me read it from the King James with the context attached, and you'll see exactly what's going on. Here's what it says. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye. Neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he saith unto thee, but his heart is not with thee. And you sit there and go, oh, wow. Yeah, wow is right. Because how is it possible that somebody who well, has been educated at least in the American education system, you know, that might answer the, <laughs> might answer my question right there, has been educated by the American education system, knows how to read, knows how to write, is capable of working technology and putting together video blogs. How is it that somebody with at least that amount of intelligence is in, un, incapable of actually going back into the biblical text and seeing that Proverbs 23.7 does not teach the law of attraction? Like, at all. Well, see, that's the thing, is is that people were all born dead in trespasses and sins. We're spiritually blind. And God's Word remains a closed book until God, the Holy Spirit, opens your eyes to what it means. 
And when you think it's about you or you go into the Bible and you kind of fortune cookie style read it and rip a verse out of context here, rip out a verse context there and, you know, patch together your own theology, you'll never understand what the Bible says. But it's really just as simple as reading a text in context, oftentimes in order to to discover the uh, false doctrine. In this particular case, the false doctrine of the so-called secret, you know, the law of attraction. We continue. That's the law of attraction. And I'm sure you've heard stories about people like Bruce Lee, how back in 1970, he wrote a letter to himself, put it on the inside of an envelope, and then he wrote on the front the secret. And what he wrote on the inside was, now this was in January of 1970, he said, by 1980, I will be the best Oriental movie star in the United States, and I will have $10 million. Well, he only made three films in three years. He actually died in 1973, but he had $10 million, and he was the best Oriental movie star in the United States. The law of attraction, that whatever gets in your mind and stays there, you will attract it in your life. Now, notice she did not go to a biblical text to prove it because the text she went to doesn't teach us at all. So she can't find other passages in the Bible that teach the law of attraction. So we, well, we take a verse out of context, say, see, this is what the Bible says, and then you go to an anecdotal story. Was Bruce Lee a Christian? Yeah, I don't think so. You've probably heard about the quarterback, Colin Kaepernick how he wrote a note to himself in the fourth grade. In fact, the class had them, the teacher had the class do this. He wrote a note to himself, fourth grade. He said, when I grow up, I'm going to be 6'4", I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to be a professional quarterback for either the Packers or the 49ers. Well, he's 6'4", went to the University of Nevada, and he's the quarterback for the 49ers. Well, that's just the law of attraction. Whatever gets in your mind and stays there, you will attract it in your life. Uh-huh. Uh. Well, I believe there are certain things you can do to attract more success. Really? Please do tell. Things in the natural, physical things that we can do. The whole month, I want to talk about different things that will help you achieve more success. But this week, specifically, your appearance. Now, I have to be very careful and very delicate with this because in no way am I saying that everybody needs to wear bright colors and a lot of makeup and have big Texas hair. (laughs) But I am. No, I I don't wear makeup and I don't have big Texas hair. So I'm not sure how on earth I'm supposed to be able to succeed in life. Saying there are certain things you can do physically that will enable you to attract more success. You know, I read somewhere, well, you've probably heard this statement you don't get a second chance on a first impression. Listen. Heard that on a soap commercial once. When you first meet someone, they. Actually, head and shoulders. It was shampoo. A judgment about you within four seconds, approximately four seconds, they've already made a judgment about you just by your appearance. The American personnel consultants, now these are the ones who are in charge of hiring or not hiring people for large companies. Listen to what they said. We make a decision within 30 seconds of the first meeting. So they haven't even heard what you have to offer. They haven't heard your skills, nothing. But within 30 seconds, they make a decision to hire or not hire someone. Listen to what else they said. Your clothing is responsible for 95% of that first impression. Now, isn't that interesting? Sure, that's, yeah, interesting. But what does this have to do with sound biblical doctrine and what God's Word teaches? I mean, you're 
whole YouTube channel is supposedly a ministry outreach. So you're wanting to go up higher in God. You're wanting to go to the next level of success that he has for your life. I'm just saying there could be certain little things that we could change in our appearance to help us go to the next level. So you want to go to the next level with God. Notice what she said there. So if you want to go to the next level with God, you know, you guys, you probably need to wear a tie or something, you know. Yeah, if, if if it's necessary for me to wear a tie in order to go to the next level with God, I'm I'm going to plateau at this point. You know, I was reading something from Closed Psychology. Listen to this. Now, keep in mind, I'm not making the cut and dry evaluation of you from head to toe. I'm not saying you have to dress, you know, in expensive clothing. Hey, I'm a bargain shopper. I like to come to work, you know, and I'll say, guess how much I paid for this? And they, I'll tell them all to guess high, you know, so they'll be like $139. And I'm like, nope. Thirteen ninety nine, TJ Maxx. <laughs> so I'm a bargain shopper, but I'm saying there are things we can do to actually look more successful, and of course, like attracts like. So, so if you look more successful, you'll become more successful because of the law of attraction. Listen to this from Closed Psychology. They said there's different types of dressers, and they have meaning behind it. Like the sloppy dresser, it says your clothes are wrinkled, stained, mismatched. Others typically take this to mean that in a figurative sense, you are too. Sloppy clothing sends a message that you don't really care about your appearance, your job, your future, or otherwise. That's amazing, isn't it? The skimpy dresser. Skimpy dressers always opt for the shortest, tightest, most revealing clothing they can find no matter where they're going. Could be the company picnic, could be at the beach with their kids. But it says wearing overly revealing clothing often exudes insecurity in an attempt to gather attention based solely on your body, perhaps suggesting this is all I have to offer. That's pretty strong, isn't it? The drab dresser, that just means that you're trying to blend in with the crowd. You don't want a lot of attention. Well, like I said, I'm not saying you have to dress a certain way. But according to this article, they said what you wear does not define you as a person. But it is a reflection of how you feel about yourself. Okay, yeah. How about the comfy dresser? I I dress comfortably. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so I think you got the point. And, uh, yeah, nothing new there as far as Terry Savelle Foy. But, again, it's important to reiterate that she teaches, you know, some principles that the Word of Faith heresy has adopted. And those principles have to do with the law of attraction, which is not a biblical law. And, you know, and, you know, the Word of Faith heresy and other things. And it's all about being successful. But my question is, is that, you know, the way the world defines success and the way Scripture defines success for a person are two polar opposite things. And it fascinates me that those people who buy into the word of faith heresy, I mean, it's its like as night follows day, that they, that they also adopt the world's definition of success rather than the biblical definition of success. You know, worldly success is not what defines us, nor is it what we as Christians are to be striving after in in the truest sense. I mean, you may be successful according to the world's definition, but that's really not our our aim. That's not the thing we're shooting at. Christ tells us to deny ourselves, take up up our cross daily, and follow him. And because he was persecuted, we also too should expect persecution. This is what Jesus has told us. But I mean, the word of faith heresy basically teaches us, oh, the thing that really is God, shows that you're in with God and gone to the next level with God is if you are achieving worldly success. And that is not at all 
how God's Word defines it or how Jesus has called his disciples to be thinking about it. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, an extended email segment to end off hour number one. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. How should Christians deal with false teaching in their midst? What should we do when our doctrine and our practice do not sync? What role does humor and satire play in calling out false teachings? These are the timely questions for the 2015 Brothers of John the Steadfast Conference, February 20th and 21st at Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville, Illinois. Hear from pastors Brian Wolfmiller, Clint Poppy, Larry Bean, Hans Feeney, and Todd Wilkin as they address the theme, When Heterodoxy Hits Home. Also, don't miss out on the No Pietists Allowed parties, the Manly Man Breakfast, and Worship to Feed the Soul. To find out more and to register for When Heterodoxy Hits Home, go to Brothers of John the Steadfast at steadfastlutherans.org. We're back. 
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the word of faith teaching isn't actually biblical and that it's focused on worldly success rather than the biblical definition of success for disciples of Jesus. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it. To the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith, it's a great way to support us. And if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Time to do a little bit of email. That's our email music. The typewriter is the name of that particular song. So uh, we'll just get right to it. And just so you know, if you send me an email and uh, and you want it to be read on the air, it's important that you uh, let me know where you are from. So you you don't have to give me your last name if you don't want to. But name and uh, you know city or state or country is fine. Uh, but if you do not let me know where you are from, I will actually make up a, a city that you are from. So, I mean, that's just our policy here at Fighting for the Faith. So, you know, if you see people with very creative places where they're from, generally that means that they didn't tell me where they're from. So I made uh, up a place for them. Our first email comes to us via Paula from Orting, Washington. And here's she, here's what uh, Paula asks. She says, uh, good afternoon, Captain. My husband and I were discussing churches last evening. We have a couple of questions for you. How does a pastor go about aligning himself with a denomination? Stephen Furtick is Southern Baptist Convention. Is there any oversight at all? Calvary Chapel, for instance, or independent Baptist churches, or all of them just businesses these days? You know, this is a good question, by the way. Um, each, oftentimes a way a, a pastor aligns himself with a denomination is he goes through that denomination seminary and then receives a call to serve a congregation within that denomination. And so generally the idea is, is that congregations themselves are aligned with a denomination or part of a denomination and that the pastors they call need to be signed off on by the, uh, you know, by whoever's in charge of rostering pastors within that denomination. So yes, it's true that Elevation Church and Stephen Furtick are Southern Baptist Convention. It's interesting to note that the Southern Baptist Convention, the way that that denomination is set up, congregations have a lot, and I, and I mean this, a lot of autonomy. And it's very difficult to punish an individual pastor. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that it's impossible. It's just that it's it's very difficult. You know, for instance, there was that uh, congregation in the SBC, I think in the San Diego area, where the pastor came out and, and basically said that he was going to be gay-affirming. 
And uh, it took some time, but the SBC eventually voted that congregation out of the SBC. It wasn't just a it just wasn't just a move against that particular pastor. He wasn't. In fact, I don't even think he was disciplined. Uh, <clears throat> since the, the since the congregation itself voted in favor of this pastor's views, that particular congregation found themselves outside of the SBC. Now, uh, in the Missouri Synod, I'm not a Missouri Synod pastor, I'm in the AALC, but in the Missouri Synod, which is a Lutheran denomination, um, they're supposed to be, um, you know, pastors are supposed to, as part of their ordination vows, agree to particular doctrines and things like that. But what's happening in many denominations, not just, you know, in the SBC or the LCMS, but what's happening across the board is that heresy is not being dealt with according to many of the denominational uh, policies that are set out by all the different denominations. As a result of that, uh, we've got a a major problem. And so when a group of churches join together, uh, you know, in a denomination or a synod or something like that, part of their charters, and, you know, you can find this in the the organizational documents for these different denominations— is uh, is that they are organized in order to you know because they believe the same things they practice the same things and part of the uh, you know the, the denominational organization's responsibility is you know making sure that uh, the seminarians are being you know are going through seminary that they're being trained and that pastors are being trained to fill the ranks of those who are retiring and or dying you know in office. Um, and that you know that there's publish there's a publishing arm for denominations, and that those and what's being published and put out for purchase supports the work of biblical preaching and teaching uh, within a denomination, and support the denomination's uh, theology. And the the thorny other aspect of it is is that also includes disciplining or defrocking those who are not um, who no longer abide by sound doctrine. And what we've seen literally happening, you know, it's not in any one denomination, but it's across the denominations, an almost unwillingness or an inability, uh, you know, by via politics for people who are heretics and denying the faith within denominations that historically have been sound or solid, um, you know, an inability or a refusal to discipline people who are breaking ranks and teaching false doctrine. And as a result of this, people have to understand this about heresy. Heresy is never content with coexisting with orthodoxy. And as a result of that, um, when heretics are not disciplined and there is no accountability, uh, when, when a pastor or a congregation goes off the rails, that, that congregation or pastor will actually kind of like a weed grow in a point in a way that it'll choke out and war with those who are orthodox. And so it's it's a very sad day that we live in that there is, you know, very little uh, oversight and accountability within historically solid denominations. And I'm not talking, you know, I'm not talking about just, you know, one or two here, but you know, but historically solid you know, uh, denominations. So it's a very very sad thing. And as far as again aligning themselves, you know, the, that's a pastor aligns himself by taking a call generally within a uh, within a church that's part of a denomination. In order to do that, he has to be approved. Okay, next one comes to us via Carl from Lacrosse, Wisconsin. Carl writes, he says, 
I'm not an evolutionist, not an old-aged Earth guy, but that, but was wondering why, if there was not death before Adam, why did God need to create a garden for Adam if everything on Earth was so safe? Never heard anyone address this. Thanks. Yeah, Carl, it, it kind of presupposes something here. Is that uh, is if the only reason why God would create a garden would be in order to protect Adam from you know wild beasties or anything like that. Um, scripture doesn't say why God created a garden, and uh, but because death didn't exist until after the fall, the wages of sin is death, and Scripture makes it clear that because of Adam's sin, the the creation itself was subject to frustration, um, and uh, it was because of Adam's sin. We know this that biblically that this is the case that death did not exist prior to the fall. Um, the, the, the one reason why God would create a garden, the one reason for sure that we can rule out is the one that says, well, he needed to create a garden in order to keep Adam and Eve safe. That's not at all why God created uh, the uh, the Garden of Eden. People create gardens for all kinds of reasons, many, many, many different reasons. And since God uh, hasn't revealed the reason why he created the Garden of Eden. I'm not about to speculate as to why he did it, but I can say this because death did not exist until after the fall. Uh, to you know, the idea of creating a safe place from, for Adam and Eve is not one of his reasons for creating the garden. And by the way, after the fall, God kicks him out of the garden. So um, yeah, so something to consider there. Next uh, email comes from Eric from Wooster, Ohio. He says. Hi, Chris. I was raised in a fundamentalist denomination, Baptist, independent fundamentalist Baptist, that talked the doctrine or belief in the rapture. I had been so sheltered for so many years, I honestly did not know until recently that I had fellow believers who did not hold to that belief. If pressed, I would only have a few, quote, proof texts to quote, but admit that the evidence is weak for such a belief. Quite honestly, the teaching always scared scared me and i suspect that that is the reason some preachers like to talk about it as a manipulation tool what are your thoughts on this teaching um eric when i was a nazarene i was taught the doctrine of the rapture and i actually believed it for for quite a long time however i do not any longer believe in a rapture at least not in the not the idea that jesus is going to secretly return either before the tribulation or partway through the tribulation and take the church out of the world. I, I, that can, I, I just don't see any scripture that backs that up. In fact, it, this is kind of important to note. When you do your homework on the doctrine of the rapture, you will find that it is a very um, recent doctrine that cropped up in, in Christian history. In fact, Christianity went nearly two millennia, nearly two millennia without any doctrine of the rapture. In fact, the, the vast majority of Christians who have lived and died, none of them heard of the doctrine of the rapture. None of them believed in the doctrine of the rapture. And so uh, and there's a reason for this, and I believe the reason is pretty simple, is that that's not what Scripture teaches. Instead, I believe what what Scripture teaches is that you know we are currently living in the last days. The last days began when Jesus ascended into heaven, and as Jesus predicts in Matthew 24, things are going to get really awful, very difficult as the day approaches of his imminent return, and that he will come in a way that is visible for everybody to see and hear. He will gather his 
his the Christians to himself on the day when he returns on the, the day of his second advent and uh, and then it's goodbye heavens and earth it's the death of the of heaven and earth and the beginning of a new heavens and a new earth that's what's going to happen but let me let me back this up a little bit with scripture and you'll kind of see what what uh what's going on here we'll take a look at Matthew chapter 24 I'll start at verse 23 here in order for context here's what it says then if anyone says to you look here is the Christ or there he is don't believe it for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Notice that verse 27 describes Christ's return as like lightning flashing from east to west. When lightning flashes from east to west, is that a secret thing? No, that's visible for everybody to see. So whenever the corp- wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is what it says. So notice that there's tribulation coming and then this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So notice this is post-tribulation, if you would. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So notice verse 30 makes it very clear that Everybody on earth, all the tribes of the son of of the of the of the sons of men, will see Christ returning. Everybody's going to see it, and here's what it says: And he, Jesus, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Loud trumpets are not secret, and they and they the angels will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to another, from the fig tree. Learn its lessons. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near and at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my word, uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, but concerning that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord, uh, your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house, uh, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. So here's the idea. The scripture does not teach a secret return of Jesus partway through the tribulation. Instead, the scriptures reveal that Christians are going through this tribulation of the last days, the great deception, you know, false Christ, false prophets, signs and wonders performed by, uh, you know, the reprobate, literally. 
and uh, in, in order to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And then it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, everybody's going to see the sign of Jesus is returning. They will mourn, and then Jesus will show up with a loud trumpet call. It'll be, you know, it, it's like lightning that flashes from east to west. No secret about it. And then everybody's gathered together. So that's the idea. And that's what the church has historically believed. That is what the church has historically taught. And so this idea of a secret rapture, again, this is a very new arrival on the scene in Christianity. And it's not based in Scripture. It's actually based in a dream that a little girl had, I think, in the 19th century. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's, I so I don't believe in the rapture. I do believe in the second coming of Christ. So, all right, Neil from Sasquatch, South Carolina writes, he says, I'm a youth pastor and a teacher in the South. There's a large presence of charismatic churches and youth groups in the area. They see, say things like baptized, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. God showed and God showed out, and we have the move of the Holy Spirit. Can you explain what they mean, or is this simply a liver-shiver phenomenon? Well, I, it, clearly it is subjective, what they're experiencing. However, I'm not convinced that it's purely subjective in the sense of, of it having its origin only within the person and being some kind of a, a liver shiver via manipulation. In fact, uh, many of the things that are manifested in churches that speak like this and teach like this, um, I think they're spiritual, but I do not believe that um, these are true manifestations of God the Holy Spirit. So we can say, yes, it's subjective. Yes, it takes our eyes off of Christ and puts them on a false teaching regarding uh, the, the work and uh, the manifestations of the Spirit. But I'm not convinced that it's purely within the, the person experiencing it. It may actually be from an outside force. Next email comes to us from Tyler in Effingham, Illinois. And Tyler Rice, he says... I came across one of your shows on YouTube today, and the only thing I took away from it at all is how much you enjoy tearing down other churches who do not fit your opinion. Okay, I'm going to highlight a word here, your opinion, of what you what a church should be. You seek to destroy any pastor that does not give a sermon in the manner that you deem worthy. There, I highlight something, you deem worthy. Okay, Jesus did not give the disciples a script to follow when it came to preaching the gospel. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. You, my friend, are not furthering the kingdom of God and bringing glory to Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible does it say destroy anyone you don't agree with. I hope you see the error that you have made. After all, Christians shouldn't seek to destroy other Christians. Well, actually, uh, Tyler from Effingham um, let's get a couple of things straight. Number one, I make uh, a point of not giving my opinions here at Fighting for the Faith and instead showing what Scripture says. Number two, it's not whether or not I deem something worthy. The question is, does it meet the objective standard revealed in Scripture? In other words, is somebody rightly handling God's Word? But the, the text that you referred to there in um, the Gospel of Matthew is the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28 and the words you used here, Tyler, were um, Jesus did not give uh, give the disciples a script to follow. And actually, I have to beg to differ with you. It's not really a script, if you would, in the sense that you know, you know, say this and then say that and then then say this and then say that. It's not exactly like a script. However, Jesus did reference something when he gave the Great Commission, and I'd like to point it out to you. Matthew chapter twenty eight. I'll start at verse 18. Here's what it says. And Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice that Jesus here in the Great Commission, um, the one that you reference about making disciples, Jesus made it very clear there was something very specific that they were to be teaching, and that was all that Jesus had commanded. So in other words, if a pastor or a Christian deviates from what Jesus has taught and given us to proclaim, well, they're not actually doing what Jesus said. It's not a script, but actually all of this is re- recorded for us in Scripture. Now, as for your claim, um, actually, uh, Tyler, this would be your opinion, uh, that uh, that um, nowhere in the Bible does it say destroy anyone you don't agree with. Now, I agree. It doesn't say destroy those that, uh, that don't agree with me. But see, again, it's not about w- my opinions. Um, we do have this from the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, when he wrote this, he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's Titus chapter 1. I'll start at verse 5. Here's what Paul wrote. Uh, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So if anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, this is a pastor, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, yeah, actually, I have a direct command from God the Holy Spirit to rebuke those who do not teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. And if that's not enough, Paul goes on and says, the reason for this is that there are many who are insubordinate. They are empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And it says this, they must be silenced since they are teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this is true. Uh, Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So, uh, yeah, Tyler, thanks for sharing your opinion, but I don't actually judge people's uh, what what pastors preach based upon my opinions. I base it upon sound biblical doctrine and God's word in context, and it's not whether or not I deem it worthy. The question is whether or not it is what they're teaching is what God's word says. And Jesus did actually make it very specific as to what pastors are to be teaching. And God's word clearly teaches in Titus chapter 1 that pastors are to rebuke those who do not teach sound doctrine. So thanks for your opinions, but your opinions fall short of what God has revealed in his word. And also, um, since God has revealed these things in his word, that's why I do what I do here at Fighting for the Faith. Next email. This one comes to us from Josh, and he's from the suburbs of Atlanta. Josh writes, he says, Hi, Captain Roseboro. My name is Josh. I live in the suburbs around Atlanta, Georgia. Joel Osteen is bringing his Night of Hope event to Atlanta in March. I grew up being fed Joel Osteen's show as a substitute for church. Wow, I feel sorry for you. And was only rescued from that by the grace of God when I left home to go to college a few years ago. I greatly desire to speak the truth to those enslaved by his message, both of my parents have now rejected Osteen's teachings after I came home and we sat 
around some open Bibles. I was wondering if you had any advice regarding a good way to go about ministering to those who will flock to Atlanta during the event. Should I try to organize people in my church to go outside the venue and speak to people or something like that? I really have no idea what I am doing uh, what I am doing in this regard, but I feel I should do something when a wolf rolls into town. Thank you for all that you do. Your show has been a great blessing to me. Josh, I think you should organize some people within your church to go out and warn people about Joel Osteen and his teaching. And and you don't want to be um, confrontational in the sense that you don't want to shout at people. But the idea here is, is you want to get their attention. And the so organize yourself in such a way that you have material that you can hand out that would point people to a good website or two where they could get the uh, get the truth and basically challenge people and say, you know, why are you listening to this man? He twists God's word. He is not a sound teacher. You need to get that message in their ears and have something that you can put in their hand because you're literally going to have just seconds to do it in order to you know to get them to a website. That would then help open their eyes. And uh, if if you put a website like that together and you want to put segments of Fighting for the Faith up, you have my permission to do so. And we will be praying for you, Josh, as you try to get the truth out uh, when Joel Osteen comes to your town. Next email comes to us via David. And David did not put where he's from. So David is from uh, Cucamonga, California. Here's what he says. Uh, Mr. Rosebro, my name is David. I love your program. I first came across your program dealing with the Hebrew Roots Movement. I have a friend who is confused who came out of the Church of Christ and still has some faulty thinking from them. He sees the Messianic Movement and the Hebrew Roots Movement, not saying that they are the same, as a foundation for Christianity. I think he is uh, replacing the Church of Christ notion of the early church being the standard of faith with, with Judaism. However, I'm getting off topic. I came across your program about Beth Moore and her strange move of the spirit that is soon to come upon us from her perspective. When I heard this, I thought the same as you, that it sounds like the great falling away. I'm just wondering, in your more educated understanding of the current church, more educated than I, do you think the church will readily go along with this, or what percentage would? I know about the Kenneth Copeland Pope getting together, but I'm not sure if the rest of the faith would fall for this. Just looking for some feedback. Okay, David, uh, let's just put it real simply. Scripture reveals that there will be a great falling away, that there will be an apostasy, and that God's going to send a strong delusion so that people will believe a lie because they did not love the truth. In fact, they <clears throat> they enjoyed the, the deeds of darkness is basically the way Paul describes it in the Thessalonians. So as to how many, what percentage of the church will fall away, I I have no idea. I do know this, that uh, in reading uh, Matthew 24 and reading Thessalonians, it's very clear that the last days are going to be very treacherous, treacherous, and there's going to be, uh, true believers are going to be persecuted uh, for not going along with uh, the false prophets and the false teachers, and uh, it's going to be a mess. So, um, yeah, I I think that... (laughs) I do think that based on Scripture, we can expect for um, some very interesting days ahead. Justin from Rapid City, South Dakota, writes, he says, Chris, have you ever heard of the book Classic Christianity by Bob George? The answer is yes, I have heard of it, but I have not read it. Here's what he says. So so far in my research, this book has revealed that it is teaching a version of antinomianism. I'm not sure how severe yet because I have not finished the book, but this book has been around quite a while. The emphasis during the study was on these sorts of ideas. One, that supposedly 
This is not a new teaching, yet most of Christianity through the ages has missed out on it. Uh, Two, that the law is not applicable to the believer, and much of Christianity through the ages has been left at the cross and not truly experienced uh, life in Christ or resurrection life. Three, that as far as I can tell, most, if not all, feelings of guilt are bad for believers. Uh, four, that a Christian does not need to seek or ask forgiveness from God any longer once in Christ. Uh, five, that we are not truly sinners any longer when we are in Christ. Uh, just saints who occasionally sin, which is ridiculous. Six, a trivializing of sin and leaving the gospel in the rear view uh, for the believers seemed to be the two undertones that were hinted at. Now, I'm not a Lutheran, but there were huge flags going up when I listened to this presentation. My pastor is supporting this older gentleman at our church as they both teach from this book. I'm concerned about these uh, things said at the study and hope that you will give me your wisdom. Uh, One, if this is something I should be concerned about, and two, what I should do if that is the case. Okay, well, let's do a little bit of work here. Number one, um, this is antinomianism, which you've described to me, and this that is a very, very dangerous and seductive teaching, and it's just not true. And so, uh, you know, just a simple way to kind of debunk some of this is that, number one, when Jesus says that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, this is in the, you know, in the, uh, the Monday Thursday portion of the Gospel of John, the night that Jesus is betrayed, he says that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, who's the Comforter, and the job of the Spirit, of the, the paraclete, is to convict the world of sin and unbelief. So the, one of the primary jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin. Now, second, I would point you to the gospel, not the gospel, but the epistle of 1 John. The epistle of 1 John uh, is written to Christians. It's written to Christians, and here's what it says. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while walking in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin." If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I think that is just about as clear as it gets in Scripture. And again, the epistle of 1 John was written to Christians. And so the idea, and then you got Romans seven to take into account, and then you have Paul's testimony about himself that he's the chief of sinners. This he's writing at the end of his life, and so this idea that floats around in Christianity that somehow uh, anything that makes you feel guilty is bad for a believer—that's hogwash. Okay, uh, there's something that God the Holy Spirit does, and that's God the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin through the preaching of the law. And so when the law of God is preached and it exposes our sin, well, that's the Holy Spirit making us feel guilty and causing us to feel sorrow and remorse for our sin. And so, I mean, this is what Scripture teaches. So when somebody says that now that you're a believer, you should never feel bad or guilty, that's not true. Uh, When uh, somebody says that now that I'm a Christian, I don't need to seek or ask for forgiveness. Well, 1 John begs to differ, and 1 John is Scripture, and it's written to Christians, and it says that if we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. That doesn't square. 
And so this idea then is is that antinomians, they in some of them do, some stripes of them end up trivializing sin, and it's it's a mess. So what you're dealing with there is not Christianity. It's a form of antinomianism, and it does not properly understand law and gospel and the ongoing uh, use of the law in Scripture. Uh, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, and you've got a problem there. So what do you do? You basically do your homework, get your biblical passages together, take the notes that you've taken by what you know it, uh, about what was said in church, and you sit down with your pastor and you say, "I've got a problem. What we're being taught, you know, regarding this man's book on classic Christianity, does not square with Scripture." And you show him very clearly. Here's what he said, here's what God's Word said. And then you ask the question, how do you reconcile the contradiction? And don't say anything. You wait for him to answer the question, but that's the way you do it. So you're going to have to have that uncomfortable conversation with your pastor, but it needs to be done. Next email comes to us from Thomas from Belfast in Northern Ireland. He says, Chris... Still loving your program. If you find the time in your busy schedule, could you please give me some help to understand this verse a bit better? The verse in question is Romans 8.13. Let me read it to you out of context, uh, which I think it helps to put it back in context. But let me read it out of context so you understand the verse that he's worried about. Uh, uh, 8.13 reads, For if you live according to the flesh, you uh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the verse. He says, It is a verse which, to be honest, troubles me each time I read it, and I've never really gained any help or comfort from any of the commentaries I've ever read on it. Does this verse threaten eternal death if we fail to mortify the sins in our lives? Because if it does, then I'm not doing a very good job of it, to be honest. Okay. Thomas, let's kind of put some things in context here. Here's the idea, is that when you see conditional statements in the New Testament, sometimes those conditional statements are not saying, if you do this, then you then you will be, you'll have eternal life. That's probably not what's going on in this text. Um, it says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the, of the body, you will live. Think of it this way. If I were to, if I were to say to you, look outside, if the pavement is wet, that means it's raining, Okay. Now, the pavement being wet does not cause the rain to fall. No, that is an indication that the rain is falling. So sometimes that's what's going on with these conditional statements. So let's put this back into context, and we're going to look at a cross-reference, okay? because the cross-reference will actually help you here. The cross-reference, by the way, is found in Galatians 5, but let's take a look uh, at what's going on here. We'll look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1 to get our context. Here's what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice that that's part of the immediate context. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Are you in Christ Jesus? Yeah, this, that's the question. And I would say, well, are you baptized? Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you have penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? These are indicators that you are a Christian, that you are in Christ. Here's what he says. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Notice what where the emphasis is. God has done what the law weakened by our sinful flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So notice the dichotomy there. You, however, are not in the flesh. (laughs) Did you see that? Verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And you go, well, does the Spirit of God dwell in me? The answer is, of course it does. Are you baptized? When you look at Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. This is what he says. So if you are baptized into Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you are a penitent believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have the Spirit, uh, which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So, you know, you got to think objectively on these things. Sometimes it's best to look outside of you to where Scripture promises where you're going to receive the Spirit, and particularly in your baptism, which is, you know, again, this is what the text says. So if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, I'm going to point something out that's sometimes difficult when you're wrestling with your sinful flesh to see. When a person reaches out to a pastor with a question like this, you know, I'm, I'm troubled by Romans 8.13, and you're, you're, you're noticing that you're having a difficulty in mortifying the flesh, keep this in mind. The mortification is a daily process, not a once and for all, finally you got the thing killed, okay? That's not how that goes. So the idea then is, is that what Paul is saying here is, is that, that we are continually, in, through the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. This is the ongoing struggle. The fact that you are having this struggle is clear from the email that you've given to me, that you've sent to me. Your email shows that you are wrestling with and mortifying your flesh, and your flesh doesn't want to die. But you're, you're, you're doing it, otherwise you wouldn't be concerned about this, because if you were not living by the Spirit, you would not have these concerns. The only thing you would be focused on is the flesh and not the mortification of the flesh, because... But because you have the Spirit, you are concerned about these things, and this is the reason why you're sending me this email, which shows objectively that you actually have the Spirit who is actively working to mortify your flesh. And keep keep this in mind. The mortification of your flesh is a daily thing. Jesus says, deny yourself daily, take up your cross, and follow him. This mortification of the flesh, this side of Christ's return is, well incomplete and something that you have to struggle with on a daily basis. But then I would point you also to Galatians chapter 5, where the distinction between walking by the Spirit and walking according to the flesh is laid out. And the kicker is verse 24. Here's what it says. And those who belong to Christ have 
crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And notice how it talks about it as something that has taken place in the past, have crucified with an ongoing implication that you're still, you know, that it's, it's still effective. So the idea then is this, is that you are in Christ. The fact, Thomas, that you are having this struggle shows that you have God's Spirit that, has dwelled, that is dwelling in you. You also can point to your baptism. You can point to the fact that you have penitent faith in Christ. And those who are in the flesh are not concerned with how well the mortification process is going. And um, I can tell you this, as somebody who has lived on the planet for almost 47 years, there are times when your flesh, uh, you know, it's like the battle of the bulge. It... Um, it it comes roaring back in an attempt to gain control over things. It does not like this mortification thing. And there are seasons in your life where um, you know it'll it'll seem like it gets the upper hand. Continue in penitent faith, and continue continue to avail yourself of, of preaching that proclaims Christ and Him crucified for your sins. That will keep you and give you the strength that you need on a daily basis to continue to mortify your flesh. Again, the the fact though that you're having the struggle shows that you actually do have the Spirit and that you're walking by the Spirit. Again, mortification is not a one-time, once and for all, you stick a dagger in its heart and it's dead. That'll happen on the day when you stop breathing or the day that Jesus returns. Until then, daily deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. Okay, that's all the time I have for email today. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a good conference lecture speech on preaching Christ from the New Testament. Seems kind of basic, but oh, man, it's really good. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Down, click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with a um, 
a good conference lecture. But let's do this right. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon really isn't a sermon it's a conference lecture a plenary speech if you would from the recently concluded southeast asia reformed network conference it was delivered by Corey klein and Corey klein is the pastor of church of blessing in karat thailand and I think it is very good for those of us living in the United States to, uh, or actually outside of Southeast Asia even, to hear the struggles of proclaiming Christ in you know, foreign cultures in Southeast Asia. And so uh, Corey's um, proclamation here is going to be based upon Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the name of his speech is Proclaiming Christ from the Gospels. And... As I said at the beginning of the program, the reason I'm playing this lecture is because what Corey says is the truth, and it's the exact opposite. It's the epitome of the opposite of what we heard yesterday from Andy Stanley in his uh, sermon on somehow overcoming the temple model or whatever, and now we've got to get rid of sacred text, sacred men, sacred spaces, and things like that. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Corey Klein in Proclaiming Christ from the Gospels. Here we go. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to serve you all this morning in this manner at a conference such as this. My session this morning will come to you in two parts. The first portion will directly speak to the issue of proclaiming Christ from the Gospels. I will point our attention to the overarching theme of the Gospels, the problem with much of our proclamation, and the solution, which is to proclaim Christ. The second half will be a demonstration of such a proclamation. I'll be reading to you from the English Standard Version this morning, but feel free to follow along on whatever version you may have. But first, let me comment on why we chose this particular theme for this conference which is proclaiming Christ in Asian contexts. This conference came about when four missionaries, all of whom were feeling that same need, the need to come together, that need, the desire that missionaries and pastors in the Reformed community feel. Some of you work alone in cities and villages that are destitute of the gospel. You are the sole light post for God in the, in the darkness. Some of you are fortunate enough to have other Christian brothers and sisters in the city that you serve in. Yet there is still a theological divide that limits how much you can interact with one another. It can oftentimes get lonely and discouraging, realizing that you 
are the lone vanguard proclaiming the good news of Christ to a lost people. And this is why we form this network. And this is why this conference is taking place. Like Elijah, we often feel like we are the only one. Yet we are not alone. God does have his remnant. Our hope is that this conference and this network will be a way in which we can come together as the body of Christ in support of one another. Here we can encourage, learn, and grow. Here we can partner, strategize, and advance. Here we can proclaim Christ to the Southeast Asian world. I love the gospel message. It is a clarion call that pierces through the darkness. I love it because it is good news to the poor and to the weak and to those who are in bondage. It has the power to nourish, the power to strengthen, and the power to set people free. But most importantly, I love the gospel message because it brings honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. When the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus is lifted up above all else. The theme of this year's conference is proclaiming Christ in Asian contexts. We chose this theme because it is the heart of what we do. It is the heart of missionaries and pastors everywhere. Above all all other things, we are to be first heralds. We proclaim, we preach. This is how God has grown his church throughout history. It is through the proclamation of his word. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul's words are fitting. We are supposed to be preachers. Yet we don't just proclaim any message that fits our fancy. We are proclaimers of Christ. He is the one that we laud. He is at the very heart of the gospel. He defines the gospel. Jesus is both God and man. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the message we are to preach. The second half of our theme is that we proclaim this message in Asian contexts. We do this in a number of ways. We study the native languages of the people. We study their culture and history, and we even study their religion. We don't do these things to learn something new in order to add on to the message, but rather we do these things to understand how to proclaim the one message in a coherent manner. We are not syncretistic in our proclamation, but we contextualize in order that God's word will be rightly understood. Yet we need to hold culture in its proper place. All cultures are inherently opposed to the gospel. Let me repeat that. All cultures are inherently opposed to the gospel. The goal is not to understand culture in order to adapt to the culture. 
but we need to understand culture in order to proclaim this gospel message clearly, even when that message grates against the cultural norms. Yet all too often the mistake is made in contextualization that we need to come into agreement with the culture. What did Jesus tell us? In the parable of the sower and the seeds, we learn that as God's word, as his word goes out, not all soil will be receptive. Only the good soil will bear fruit. In John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, Jesus gives his disciples this warning. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. A good test to see if you have contextualized well is asking yourself this question. Is your message offensive to anyone? Take the gospel to the masses and see if it doesn't produce a stench of death to those who are lost. If you are not a reproach to some, then you're not doing it correctly. <clears throat> With all this in mind, we as an organizing committee felt that it was fitting that proclaiming Christ in Asian context be the theme for this first Southeast Asian Reform Conference. And we have assigned the task of the four main sessions to be about this very topic. Last night you had the pleasure of hearing Brother Steer preach Jesus from the Psalter. Tonight, you'll have the opportunity to hear a panel discussion on how to evangelize in Asian contexts that we serve in. And tomorrow, Brother Evan, he will proclaim to you Jesus from the epistles. And I have been given what seems to be the easiest of the four tasks, and to proclaim to you Jesus from the Gospels. With that in mind, let us pray. Father, our desire this morning is to honor you with our worship. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We ask that you would uh, fill our hearts and fill our minds with your spirit, Lord. Guide us in all truth. Lord, we ask that you would convict us of our sins this morning. But more than that, we ask that you would uh, comfort us with your gospel message and direct our eyes to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And while Matthew doesn't explicitly tell us his purpose in writing his gospel, we see an overarching theme of Jesus, the kingly Messiah, throughout the whole narrative. And one just has to read it once to discover that the story is all about Jesus. If I were to take my best guess as to what Matthew's theme would be, I would direct you to to the three warnings that Jesus gave to his disciples about how he was going to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and scribes. He was going to be killed. And on the third day, he would raise from the dead. But don't take my word for it. Read the book. Brothers and sisters, we have created an idol. The Gospels are about Jesus. They are not about you. Though the stories told in these four narratives have significant bearing on your life, you are not in the story. Jesus is the story. He is the reason these holy words were written, so that you may know your Savior intimately, and that you might have faith in the person that these Gospels were written about, in order that you may receive life eternal. The Gospels hold a special place in my heart, for it is from these books that God produced faith within me. Now one would think that out of the four plenary sessions that I would have a great advantage over my counterparts. After all, Jesus is in every chapter of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How could I go wrong? Yet all too often we have heard sermons preached from the Gospels that have nothing to do with Christ. Maybe you have preached some yourself. Instead, these sermons are man-centered and full of practical things for us to do, yet they have nothing to do with Christ or the passage that is being preached. The purpose of the Gospels is to point us to Jesus, and to make these books about ourselves is not only bad hermeneutics, but it dishonors God. Today we have what Millard Erickson terms as an inverted theology. I quote, Instead of regarding God as our Lord, whose glory is the supreme value and whose will is to be done, we regard him as our servant. Luther thought of it in terms of two opposing theologians, the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. This is why we see man-centered preaching today. And this is why false teachings, such as the prosperity gospel, are prevalent and rapidly spreading throughout the world of missions. Yet the prosperity gospel isn't the only form of this man-centered hermeneutic. It is just the easiest to spot. The recent trend in the last 20 years in the West has been to post-modernize the church. There has been an increase in postmodern thought, particularly when it comes to how we interpret God's word. It doesn't matter what denomination you are affiliated with. It doesn't matter if you hold no denomination. It doesn't matter whether you are charismatic, open but cautious, or a cessationist. Postmodernism 
has wormed its way into the church and into the world of missions. We need to be wary of it. Postmodernism comes at life with a discrete narcissism. Truth has been downgraded in order to lift up the individual. And the overarching meta-narrative has been tossed to the side in the name of liberating the texts of Scripture. And while many feel that the emergent church movement is dying, I believe that's only a facade. Yes, people like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren are no longer functioning pastors of their churches. Yet their heretical views have become like yeast spreading throughout the evangelical world. The crop of missionaries that we see today, they grew up watching NUMA videos in their youth groups. They've read books like A New Kind of Christianity. And they are getting theologically fed from websites such as Patheos and the Huffington Post. And like all other things that come from the West, this too is influencing the missionary world. Repentance from sins and faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, that is pragmatically seen as an obstacle to accepting the gospel. Instead, a message of kingdom living is in vogue these days. You'll be told not to talk about the sins of culture. They will say to you things like this, Don't worry if these new believers continue to worship their old gods. If God truly wants them to let go of that part of their culture, the Holy Spirit will show them in his own way. He doesn't need you to tell them. You will also be told not to talk about God's wrath towards sinners. You may hear something like this. Culturally, anger is the worst of sins to Asian people. If you describe God as being wrathful, you'll just turn them away from Christ. These are the arguments being put forth in the world of missions today. These are the arguments of the old gospel against the old gospel. But what is this new gospel? What do they mean when they talk about the gospel of the kingdom or kingdom living? It is often described as participating in the things that Jesus did, healing the sick, feeding the poor, being friends of sinners. It is living a life according to the morals Jesus set forth, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, loving your neighbor. By doing these things, you make Christ attractive, and others will want to join you in this kingdom living. And while this all sounds very good and noble, there's one basic problem with this approach to missions. They have ignored the rest of God's word. And by doing so, they have turned the gospel into a work that we must do. To them, being a part of the kingdom has nothing to do with repentance and faith in Christ. But it's all about your own good deeds. More and more I have met and talked with missionaries who have real qualms about sharing the biblical gospel. They don't want to rock the boat by making any strong truth claims. They allow for syncretistic methodologies in the name of protecting the culture. And they desire to attract people to Christ by their own good works. Yet to achieve their ends, they commit to a flawed interpretation of the Gospels. 
No longer are the Gospels books that testify to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But they are read in light of a moral do-goodism that Jesus displayed as an example of kingdom living. The penal substitutionary atonement has been set aside for a panentheistic narrative about a man who showed us what it meant to live a life filled with God's Spirit. For them, Jesus' death upon the cross occurred only as a demonstration about the evils of social injustice. Again, this is a man-centered hermeneutic. The focus is no longer about what Jesus did for you, but rather about the example that Jesus set and what you need to be doing. It is the religion of the Judaizers all over again, only with a postmodern veneer. Yet one only has to read the Gospels to see the folly of postmodernism or any other man-centered interpretations. When we read the Gospels, we don't see many characters other than Jesus portrayed in a positive light. Even the disciples are made to look rather ordinary and at times quite foolish. Near the end of the books, they have all betrayed Jesus and fled. Sure, there are the occasional minor characters who are shown positively. Take, for instance, the man born blind in John chapter 9. Throughout the chapter, we see him getting bolder and bolder in his witness for Jesus. Yet what is he applauded for? Is it not for his faith in Christ? Time and again, these are the characters we see throughout the Gospels that are described favorably. Those who had faith in Jesus. It has nothing to do with their moral behavior. It is simply that they had trusted in Jesus, the one in whom the story is all about. In fact, the most moral and well-behaved characters we see are the Pharisees. Yet Jesus rebukes them harshly because they followed man-made traditions. And by doing so, they rejected God's word. Yet all too often, passages of Scripture are taught with the goal of focusing on ourselves. And by doing so, we have created our own man-made traditions. Take a quick Take a quick glance at the story in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And then, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? How many times have you heard a sermon preached on this passage where the focus has been put on ourselves? What are the storms in your life? What are the trials and tribulations that you are going through? What are you not trusting God for? Do you see how easy it is for us to insert ourselves into the text? Yet we're not reading Aesop's fables here. The story I just read really happened. There was a real boat, 
in a real sea. And there were real men sitting inside that boat, none of which, by the way, were you. And there was a real storm with real waves, and Jesus was really sleeping. So why was this story recorded for us? The punchline is in the last verse. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? This story is about Jesus and the fact that he is God. It's not about the storms in your life. Then there are the numerous imperatives that Jesus gives, such as turn the other cheek, love your neighbor as yourself, or take up your cross and follow me. How are we to preach these in a manner that isn't legalistic? How are we to direct people to the work of Jesus on the cross from law passages such as these? Here is where a proper understanding of both law and gospel is helpful. Understanding the three uses of the law as both Luther and Calvin taught. These law passages are put there not only to show us what a good work is, but to point us to the fact that we are a sinful, rebellious people who have turned their backs on God. Yet we do need a Savior. Brothers and sisters, we have created an idol. And all we have to do is stare in the mirror to worship it. We so desperately desire to have meaning in our lives that we have twisted the very words that point us to Christ. Instead, we have inserted ourselves into the text in order for us to gain that feeling in our lives that we are somehow significant. The idol of individualism has run rampant among the church in the West, and we missionaries have brought it along with us to the East. So what is the solution? How do we rid ourselves of this idol? We need to repent. We need to take our eyes off ourselves and focus them on Christ. We need to train ourselves to look for Jesus in the Scriptures. And we need to proclaim this Jesus, both who He is and what He has done. We need to call people to repentance and faith in Christ alone. This is the task Jesus has set before us. All other things are secondary. But rather than droning on about what it means to preach Christ from the Gospels, let me demonstrate it for you. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We will be reading verses 25 through 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, 
And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Here we see a lawyer who in some respects is asking one of the most fundamental questions of life. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Last night we heard James talk about a fundamental question. Here we have one that's very similar. Now when Luke uses the term lawyer, it's, it's the same meaning as in the other Gospels when you read the word scribe. Lawyers, they followed in the footsteps of Ezra. And this lawyer would have been trained to study God's law, to teach God's law, and to transcribe God's law in order to preserve it for the next generation. Just to be clear, when I use the word law here, I'm referring to the Old Testament writings. So this lawyer would have known Scripture very well. When disputes arose, concerning nuances in the law. Lawyers, lawyers would have been the authorities to settle these disputes. So when this lawyer came to Jesus, he was not looking for information, but rather, as the text says, he was testing Jesus. Most likely, he wanted to see if Jesus would answer incorrectly in order to proclaim Jesus a false teacher. All too often we see stories in the Gospels of the scribes doing this very thing. But let's give this man the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he really wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah. Either way, he came to Jesus with a difficult question, but one which he already thought he knew the answer to. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the question that the lawyer posed to Jesus. If you just glance over it without putting much thought into it, this question will seem pretty straightforward. The lawyer just wants to know what he has to do in order to receive eternal life. But the lawyer knows that eternal life isn't just something that is earned. So he inserts the word inherit. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This may seem odd to us. Inheritance is a gift received upon the death of a loved one. There's nothing that we do to earn it, but it normally comes to us through familial relations. So what is this lawyer getting at? Why does he describe something we must, we must earn with a word that connotes the idea of it being a gift? What he is getting at is this dual idea that eternal life is not only earned, but is also inherited at the same time. You see, Israel was God's chosen people. So naturally, the inheritance must come down through them. 
But for this lawyer, being a child of Jacob wasn't enough. Good works must be involved somehow. Hence the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's see how Jesus responds to this intricate question. Look at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're a lawyer. You have spent your entire life studying God's law. And you're asking me what you must do? This is a law question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? This is an appropriate question for us as well today. How do you read God's law? Is God's word authoritative? If so, to what extent? Does the principle of sola scriptura apply to you? When you read God's commands, are you obedient to them? Or are you your own master? But Jesus is asking more than this to this lawyer. He would have already known that this lawyer had a high view of Scripture. Now what Jesus is doing, he is discerning this man's interpretive lens. What is the key to unlocking God's law? How do you read it? Let's see how this man answers. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer doesn't hesitate, but he goes straight to the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5 state this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. For Israel, the Shema was their creed. It stated what they believed and how they should respond to that belief. If you grew up in Israel, this would be the first passage of Scripture that you would memorize as a child. Even today, faithful Jews will recite the Shema twice a day. It sums up the Mosaic Law. Basically, it is pure devotion to God. And while you may be wondering why this lawyer adds on the bit at the end about loving your neighbor as yourself, let me say this. He is not in error. Loving God leads to loving God's creation as well. When you love your neighbor, it is an act of devotion to God. As we see in verse 28, Jesus is in agreement with our lawyer friend. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the lawyer's interpretive lens is on correctly, at least concerning his original question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Fulfill the law. Fulfill the law and you will live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. There's only one problem here. Who can do this? Who can say that they love God perfectly? Can you? And which of you loves your neighbor as yourself? 
Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Do not commit idolatry. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Do not lie. Do not commit adultery. Do not slander your neighbor. This is a mighty task. And if you're honest with yourself, you will see that there is not much hope for you. If this is the way to inherit eternal life, then like the Apostle Peter, I ask, who then can be saved? Yet our lawyer friend has a different question for Jesus. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? One can almost feel the arrogance pulsating from this man. He just bypassed the commandment to love God and goes straight to the command of love your neighbor. Does he not need to justify himself in the arena of loving God first? Has he not bowed down to any idols? Has he never blasphemed God's name? Yet this man wants to know who his neighbor is. What is he doing here? He is trying to weaken God's law. He's playing word games in order to soften the blow. He wants to redefine this particular sin because deep down he knows that he is guilty. The scribes and Pharisees would point to Psalm 139 to justify the way they treated the Gentiles and the Samaritans. Psalm 139 verses 19 through 22 state this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. These are the justifying verses for our lawyer friend. Surely he only has to prove that he loves the people that love God and not his enemies. The Gentiles and the Samaritans, they don't count, right? Jesus confronted this very issue on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This lawyer's interpretation of Psalm 139 is incorrect. Jesus shows us the error and commands us to love our enemies. But this lawyer is looking to justify himself. Jesus could have just given him the command to love his enemy. But instead, he shares with him a parable that ends in a question. You see, Jesus wants this lawyer to condemn himself by his own answer. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 30 kilometers in length 
and it descends nearly a thousand meters. And there are many rocky places and caves where thieves could lie in wait for helpless passerbys. The, the man was most likely taken by surprise. He would, he would then be stripped, beaten, until he was half dead. He is now naked, bloody, and suffering. And without help, he will die on that road. Yet there is a sound of footsteps. Someone is approaching. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. More footsteps are approaching. Maybe this next person will rescue this broken man. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. What is happening here? Why do the priest and Levite pass by on the other side? Why don't they stop to help this unfortunate soul? Maybe they are worried about the robbers who did this. It's better not to stop and suffer the same fate. Yet both pass by on the other side. <coughs> now it is more than just fear with these two. Both the priest and the Levite work in the temple. There are certain ceremonial laws that they must keep in order to work the jobs that they have. One of which is to not touch a dead body. What if this man is dead? To touch them would make them unclean. So instead of drawing near, they decide it's better not to risk that chance encounter. Instead of loving this helpless man, they put their own needs ahead of his. Yet the story is not finished. There are more footsteps approaching. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The irony could not be any thicker for this lawyer. A Samaritan? Those half-bred dogs? You mean the ones who think Mount Gerizim over there is where you worship God? Surely they have no part in God's inheritance. You see this lawyer? To this lawyer, the Samaritans were the enemy. Their ancestors intermarried with Gentiles, and they no longer kept kosher. There has been bad blood between them and the Jews for centuries. And the way they worshiped God was both twisted and blasphemous. For the hero of this story to be a Samaritan was not only shocking, but appalling. Brothers and sisters, this attitude hits close to home. Does it not? As Reformed, we hold to the five solos of the Reformation. We hold to the doctrines of grace. And we are well aware of the false teachings that are within the greater evangelical world. We're willing to fight for sound doctrine and methodologies that are biblical. But let me ask you this. Do you love your enemies? Do you love those who preach the prosperity gospel? Do you love those who twist God's word in pursuit of wealth and power? Do you love the ones who have changed the gospel message and are leading others down 
a path of destruction. I'm not asking you if you love their practices. I'm asking you, do you love them? Or does your heart burn with hatred for them? Jesus tells us plainly, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This Samaritan does not worship God appropriately. Yet he is the one that has compassion on this dying man. He is moved in his innards to help this unfortunate soul. And what does this compassion lead him to do? He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan binds up the wounds. He uses oil and wine for cleansing and for healing. The dying man cannot walk, so the Samaritan uses his own animal to carry the wounded to a safe place. There he spends the day nursing this half-dead man back to life. He gives two days' wages to the innkeeper as payment for further hospitality and care. He promises more money if the need should arise. So the question is posed, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? The priest and the Levite have the appropriate theology and the appropriate form of worship, but they have not compassion. The Samaritan, the theologically flawed man, the long-standing enemy of the Jews, he is the one that shows compassion. He is the one that fulfills God's command to love our neighbor, even when that neighbor is our enemy. This is why the lawyer answers, the one who showed him mercy. Yes, this lawyer has just condemned himself. He knows that he doesn't love his neighbor. As much as he tries to justify himself, deep down, he knows that he is guilty. And what does Jesus say to this lawyer who wants to justify himself? You go and do likewise. The lawyer wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life. He is looking to God's law for salvation. Jesus has given this parable as a demonstration of how strict God's law really is. Love your your neighbor. Love your enemy. Show compassion and mercy. Put their needs ahead of your own. I ask you, do you love your neighbor? If fulfilling the law is a requirement for gaining eternal life, which among you can say that you've earned eternal life? Are you like this Samaritan? Have you put away your selfish desires? and replace them with meeting the needs of others? Or are you more like the priest and the Levite, very religious, yet not willing to put yourself at risk? 
Whom have you turned your back on? Whom have you disappointed? While you may act similar to the priest and Levite, truly I say to you, because of your sins, you are more like that that man lying dead on the ground. You have been robbed and beaten, and you cannot get up. In fact, you've been knocked unconscious, and you lie there motionless. This is because you are dead. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. You have only one hope, and that hope comes from outside of you. Jesus is that hope. He is a good neighbor that travels the road. He finds you, and he takes off his own robe and binds up your wounds. He cleanses you, not with oil and wine, but with his very blood shed for you on the cross. He brings you to a safe place and purchases your stay. In fact, there is no price that he is not willing to pay in order that you are fully healed from your sins. And for the time being, he has left you in the care of his Holy Spirit and his church. But he will soon return. And when he does, not only will you have a renewed spirit, but your body will be made new as well. Yes, Jesus is your good Samaritan. Though you were his enemy, he has done this for you. He has paid the penalty for your sins upon the cross. The wrath of God that should have been directed towards you was placed upon him. And in return, you have received his righteousness. No longer does God see you like a priest or a Levite, nor does he see you as a man lying half dead on the road. No, God sees you with Christ's righteousness. Now God sees you as that good Samaritan, because Christ lives in you. You are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. It is your love for your master that spurs you on, And now when you see your neighbor in need, you do not act without compassion, but you show the mercy of Christ. Yet it is not you, but Christ within you. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for what you have communicated to us this morning. Lord, your law is difficult. Your law is hard. When we look at your law, we're guilty. We see our guilt. And there's nothing we can do about it. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He truly is that good Samaritan. He picks us up. He carries us to a safe place. He pays for our stay and nurses us back to health. Lord, our sins condemn us, yet Christ has taken your wrath upon himself as penalty for those sins. We praise you for this, God. We thank you for what you have done. Lord, change our hearts. Give us the heart of a good Samaritan, Lord, that we may go out and serve our neighbor. Lord, we can only do this by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>